Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 23, 1 Samuel chapter 15. You know, it's always a challenge for me to know how long to remain in any chapter or book. Because if we go too fast, we miss the impact of certain vital God principles that are presented to us. And if we go too slow and too methodically, we become so focused on the details that we lose the big picture. Every word of God's word is important. Every chapter of every book in the Bible is there for a reason. But there are some chapters and passages that that, that have a depth and a kind of gravity to them that are worth all the time and mental energy that we can muster to explore them. And yet even when we've done all that it seems that we can do to ferret out what's there, we instinctively know in our spirits that we've only scratched the surface. And we leave that study with a sense of unfinished business. 1 Samuel chapter 15 is that kind of chapter. And despite the significant amount of time we're going to dedicate to it, it won't have been enough. We have some important history to deal with. We have some important God principles to absorb and in some cases to re-examine. Now, this history and the principles that are contained in it are kind of like connecting tissue that binds together what came before with what will come after. This chapter has hidden fingers in it that stretch out in many directions and we're going to explore several of them. So this is going to get pretty detailed. And if you're a note taker, have plenty of paper and an extra pen or pencil handy. If you're not a note taker, maybe you want to convert. Well, we read all of chapter 15 last week, and this week we'll read at least some of it again, but in sections. We're going to start off by reading just the first three verses of 1 Samuel chapter 15. That's page 313 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Shmuel said to Shaul, Adonai sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now listen to what Adonai has to say. Here's what Adonai Savot says. I remember what Amalek did to Israel. How they fought against Israel when they were coming up from Egypt. Now, go and attack Amalek. Completely destroy everything they have. Don't spare them. But kill the men, women, children, babies, cows, sheep... Camels and donkeys. Some undefined amount of time has passed since the battle of Mi'kmaq Pass as described in 1 Samuel 14. Could have been months, maybe a couple years. Samuel's been silent for a while. But now the Lord has determined that it's time to deal with a very wicked people that are the supreme earthly enemy of Israel. This is Amalek. And so the Lord sends his prophet to Israel's king 
with the order to commence a holy war. Now, the source of the hatred that Amalek has for Israel is difficult to explain. But we need to explore it because their hatred for Israel is the primary reason for God's hatred of Amalek. Now, just who or what Amalek is and why they're so important is difficult to trace. However, their position as apparently the supreme nation of evil and the enemy of Israel in God's eyes and as a a type or a pattern that will show up again in the end times means we need to understand all that we can about Amalek's true identity. Now, what we do know of Amalek is that they are at least partly descendants of Esau, Jacob's twin brother. Amalek was a nation of desert dwellers living in the upper Sinai, uh, the region of the Negev. And um, they ranged as far as the Arabian Peninsula. Esau got a nickname, Edom, which means red. And he had as his firstborn son a fellow named Eliphaz. And Eliphaz produced a son with a foreign concubine, Timnah, who was a a Horite. And this son's name was Amalek. And if that's all there was to it, then it would be simple enough to say that the Amalekites were the descendants of Esau through his grandson Amalek. But in Genesis 14.7, in Abraham's time, well before Eliphaz's concubine bore Amalek, there was already a people group in existence called the Amalekites. This nation of people was living in the desert regions of Canaan, pretty much where we still find them now in 1 Samuel chapter 15, some 700 years later. We do know that the Horites, Amalek's mother was a Horite, also lived in the same region and likely by now had become very closely intermingled with the Amalekites. Very possibly it was merely that Esau's grandson Amalek got his name because his mother, perhaps his father, had become very closely associated associated with the Amalekite people. And it was quite usual to name a child in a way that more or less dedicated that child or identified them with some clan or tribe or a deity. In other words, what we have here is a chicken and egg problem. Which came first? The Amalekite people or the person of Amalek, grandson of Esau? Or were the Amalekites of Abraham's era an entirely different, though similarly named, group of people than the Amalekites that Saul was instructed to fight? Well, here we'll follow in some depth one of those fingers I just talked about because it addresses an important God principle. It is that God divided and separated the earth's population into two groups. And he elected one group 
as his people, and thus the remainder were not his people. Now, our examination of this finger is going to begin with an interesting account in Numbers 24.20 that dealt with the identity of Amalek. The pagan prophet Bilam, a seer from Mesopotamia, who had been hired by King Balak to curse Israel as they entered his territory. This was about 400 years prior to the time of Samuel. Wound up blessing Israel and cursing Israel's enemies. And one of the enemies that Bilam cursed was Amalek. Numbers 24.20 He saw Amalek and made this pronouncement. First among the nations was Amalek, but destruction will be his end. Now, part of the problem in identifying and defining Amalek lays in the translation from the original Hebrew. Where this passage in Numbers 24 says, first among nations was Amalek, it can also be translated as first among the Gentiles was Amalek. However, the word that is being translated into first among is in Hebrew, reshit, which more literally means beginning. The first words of your Bible, the first words of Genesis are Be-Reshit, in the beginning. Okay? So perhaps a more accurate translation into English would be the beginning of the Gentiles or in the beginning of the Gentiles or even better, probably more in context, in the beginning of the Gentile nations. Okay, now stay with me. So we have now, in the beginning of the Gentile nations is Amalek, but destruction will be its end. However, when we now look at that part of the phrase, but destruction will be its end, we also see some problems with the usual way it's presented in modern English. Depending on your Bible version, you'll find this phrase rendered, but its end is utter destruction, or its fate is to perish forever, or, or, or something like that. See, the Hebrew word that is variously being translated as its end or its fate is aharit. And because the Bible employs various kinds of prose, we see that a form of the word aharit is chosen because it's the antonym. It's the opposite of the word reshit. So we have aharit the end, Reshit, the beginning. So the pronouncement is that while Amalek is the beginning or the first of the Gentiles, their ending will be destruction. Okay? But even more interesting is that the exact grammatical form of the word Aharit in this passage is Aharito, which means remnant or in this case, all that remains. Thus, we wind up with this construction when we apply the Hebrew sense to it. In the beginning of the Gentile nations is Amalek, but all that remains of them shall be destroyed forever. Thus, we see the prophetic nature 
of Amalek as the archetypical enemy of God and therefore of his set-apart people of Israel. Amalek was the first nation and by definition a Gentile nation to attack Israel. And of course it is Gentiles who are the enemy set apart for destruction because it is Gentiles who are always set over and against Israel. God's chosen. Thus it is that the only way for a person born as a Gentile, a natural enemy of God's people since the moment he divided the world into Hebrews and Gentiles, the only way to escape from being judged by Jehovah and eternally destroyed is to join Israel and to leave behind the Gentile, the anti-Israel, anti-God, anti-Christ identity. Those Gentiles who have accepted the God of Israel and his commandments and his redemptive plan are declared by God as spiritually joined to Israel. And so from a heavenly, eternal perspective, they no longer share the same fate as the first recorded Gentiles, Amalek, to become openly hostile to the redeemed of God. So in yet another context and setting, about how Gentiles relate to Israel from a spiritual, from an eternal perspective. Listen again, as we've done many times, to Paul in Romans 11. Romans 11.16 So if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches, Israelites, were broken off, and you, a wild olive, Gentiles, were grafted in among them and have become equal shares in the rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast as if you were better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember, you're not supporting the root. The root's supporting you. Amen. Yeah, I like that, amen. <laughs> now, you've heard scores of times that gen, as Gentiles, it's necessary that we be grafted into Israel and that it is needed in order for natural-born Gentiles to partake in the benefits offered by the Hebrew Messiah who is from the tribe of Judah and thus belongs to Israel. So it's equally important to understand that essentially, just as we are spiritually grafted into Israel, we are also spiritually removed from our Gentile status in God's eyes. We are cut off and removed from a wild olive tree, the Gentile tree trunk, grafted into the olive tree of God, the Hebrew tree trunk. And why is that important? Because from the moment that God divided and separated the world into two distinct people groups, Hebrews and Gentiles, one group, Hebrews, were to be those who formed and maintained the kingdom of God on earth, while the other, Gentiles, by biblical definition, 
automatically represented those who oppose and seek to destroy God's kingdom on earth. Now let me quickly remind you, I'm speaking of the cutting off and then the grafting in being accomplished on a spiritual level. Not on a bodily, physical level. Gentiles do not have, do not magically have the genes rearranged in our bodies and become Hebrews upon the acceptance of the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua. Nor do we become legally qualified on earth to gain national citizenship to the earthly nation of Israel. From a higher level, Amalek represents all Gentiles who oppose God and who oppose His chosen. Thus, by means of Yeshua, some Gentiles will become identified from a spiritual perspective as Israel and be saved. While those who remain spiritual Gentiles, spiritual Amalek who opposes God, those will be eventually forever destroyed. This is as fundamental as it gets to the underlying biblical relationship between Gentiles and Israel. And it explains exactly what it is that separates the eternally saved from the eternally damned. And it also demonstrates Amalek's real spiritual and prophetic identity. On the other hand, from a strictly earthly physical perspective and from the perspective of King Saul and the prophet Samuel in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, the Amalekites were in that day seen as being closely associated with the descendants of Esau. Likely because Esau's grandson Amalek became the head of that nation of people that had existed even from Abraham's day. Amalek from a physical, political perspective, doesn't seem to have been any greater natural threat to the tribes of Israel in that era than any other nation such as Ammon or Moab or or Philistia. Now as concerns our modern times and, and, and the way we need to view it currently, let me be clear that other than the fact that Arabs are Gentiles, we cannot necessarily say that the modern Amalekites are the Arabs or the Palestinians. First, ethnically speaking, Arabs come from Ishmael, Isaac's brother, not from Esau. Second, the Palestinians are a genetically mixed bag and, and cannot be seen as one particular race or nation of people. And third, all Gentiles who continue to oppose God and Israel, not just Arabs or Palestinians, are counted as spiritual Amalekites. No matter what nation we might call home or what race or ethnicity we belong to. Okay, so with this understanding of who Amalek was and is, and how this transcends time and nationality, let's move a little more forward with our lesson.
Amalek had wantonly attacked Israel while they were but a mob of ragtag refugees out in the wilderness having just fled from Egypt. And for this great evil against his redeemed, the Lord pronounced this sentence upon Amalek in Exodus 17.14. Adonai said to Moses, Write this in a book to be remembered and tell it to Joshua. I will completely blot out any memory of Amalek from under heaven. And as Israel neared the end of their 40-year journey, and they approached Canaan, the Lord again said in Deuteronomy 25.17, Remember what Amalek did to you on the road as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you by the road and attacked you from the rear, those who were exhausted and straggling behind when you were so tired and weary. He did not fear God. Therefore, when Adonai, your God, has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies and the land Adonai, your God, is giving you as your inheritance to possess, you are to blot out all memory of Amalek from under heaven. Don't forget. Okay. Now, the key word, fellow Gentiles, is he did not fear God. That's the key to this. Amalek, remember, being the epitome of Gentiles, chose to attack Israel because they did not fear the God of Israel, meaning they didn't honor him and accept him. Jehovah says that those who oppose him and or are against his chosen people, Israel, do not fear him. That's how he sees it. Now, I hope that no one who is listening to this lesson is against Israel, let alone against God. But if in your mind you believe that you can stand with the God of Israel, but at the same time out of some kind of political or philosophical belief that you hold dear, think that you can stand against God's people Israel, then you need to rethink your position. God counts standing against his people as standing against him. And let me tell you, we all count on that, don't we? Because we are his people and we want him to be our shield. Such an untenable position makes you Amalek. Not an identity anyone, one with a hope for an eternal future wants to be labeled with. This by no means says you must agree on every point with Israel or endorse all of its government's actions or even side with every Jew. Okay? But you must have a love and concern in your heart for Israel, honoring them as God's chosen that is well above any humanitarian concern for those Gentiles who are openly Israel's enemies. Else you risk it all. The Lord, through Samuel, makes two things abundantly clear. A, that King Saul is to let nothing remain of Amalek, and B, this is a holy war. And you say, where does it say holy war? Right? Well, it's masked by the English translation of completely destroy in verse 2. But more literally, 
it says that Saul is to put Amalek under the ban. Okay. The Hebrew word being translated is harem. And we've discussed the law of harem on a few occasions in here, but let's talk about it again. The law of harem, the law of the ban, is the central principle of holy war. Okay. It means that everything that is confiscated during a war action belongs to the commander-in-chief. Okay. This law was not at all unique for Israel among Middle Eastern nations, except that Israel was the only Middle Eastern society in which their God was the commander-in-chief. In all other cases, it was that nation's king. And the idea was that in that era, the spoils of any conflict were usually considered just part of the soldier's pay. However, this was always at the discretion of their king. He might reward them with a, with a bonus, so to speak, of a portion of the spoils of war, or he might ban them from taking any of the spoils for themselves, and instead they were just merely to gather it all up and then turn it over to the king for his benefit. So the idea of harem, ban, as concerned Israel was that unless the Lord gave specific instructions to the contrary, it was automatically assumed that all God-ordained conflicts, holy wars, had the ban instituted, thus barring the Israelite soldiers from keeping any of the spoils for themselves. Israel was still to gather the spoils of war, and turned them over to their commander-in-chief, Yehovah. But the means of doing that was quite unique, and it has greatly bothered and upset Jewish and Christian scholars to this day. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Well, since God is a spiritual being, not a man, and he has no barns or storehouses for fine fabrics and wine and olive oil. And since the Lord doesn't need riches of silver and gold, and since he also doesn't need cattle and sheep and goats for food, then how exactly are these banned spoils of war to be turned over to him? By destroying them, usually with fire. Destroying the spoils accomplishes two things. First, it keeps God's people from partaking of any of the benefits of the spoils. And second, by turning the spoils to ashes, it essentially returns these things to their natural elements, which is like returning them to creation, which is like returning them to their creator. Now, it's one thing to burn down cities and villages, destroy produce and domestic animals, prohibit precious metals and valuable jewelry from falling into the hands of the Israelite soldiers. But what about the utter annihilation of the enemy people that has been ordered? Notice that verse 3 has God telling Samuel to tell Saul that none are to be spared. Not women, children, not even infants. Now if that doesn't make you squirm a little bit, I don't know what will. Because one of the basic questions that most Christians ask at some point is what happens to babies or small children who die before they have any real opportunity to know Messiah and make a decision? 
And the usual answer is that they are deemed by God as to be innocent. So why aren't the infant Amalekites deemed innocent here in 1 Samuel 15? This is a pretty tough topic. Well, holy war, you see, is not geopolitical war. Holy war is not religious war. Holy war is not about spreading the religion of the Hebrews. It's about keeping the religion of the Gentiles from infecting the religion of the Hebrews within the territory of the kingdom of God, which for now is Canaan. Further, not just any kind of war that Israel and their future kings decide to enter into is holy war. Only when God directly orders it is it holy war. Thus, only when God orders it and directs it can the God-ordained law of harem, law of the ban, come into play. Now, I tell you this because I'm not sure I've ever found an otherwise good and faithful Christian commentator who has not tried to find a good reason why the law of harem not only no longer applies, but will never again apply. Let me give you a couple of quotes from folks who, some of the, who are some of the best known and most revered commentators and can also be somewhat considered at least Hebrew roots-oriented folks. Here's what Alfred Edersham says. This accommodation of the law to each stage of man's moral state together with the uh, continuous moral advancement which the law as schoolmaster was intended to bring about and which in turn was met by progressive revelation renders it impossible to judge of a divine commandment by trying to put it as in our own times or as applicable to us. R.P. Gordon says, Like the whole concept of holy war, it's far removed from the Christian code of the New Testament. And it must be seen in the context of the provisional morality of the Old Testament. Now both of these examples are of folks trying to find a way around a problem. Because it bothers their personal sensibilities and their Western notions of civility. But more to the point, even their reference to the so-called New Testament Christian code as having the holy war concept abolished completely falls apart unless one removes the book of Revelation and the battle of Armageddon out of our Bibles. And this is where modern believers can really get off track by essentially apologizing for God or deciding that the very nature of the Lord has changed at the turning of the page from Ezra to Matthew or explaining that we worshipers of the God of Israel have gained such morality and refinement since the days of Abraham and Samuel and David that we have risen above the need for holy war and thus God is essentially canceled it for us. Of course, then, how do we explain away Armageddon? The Jezreel Valley being filled up to a horse's bridle with the blood of the enemy as extracted by our Messiah 
who was God. And the absolute annihilation of every last human being on earth of any age, sex, race, or nation who prior to the start of the battle of Armageddon hadn't turned their lives over to God. There are no prisoners taken at the battle of Armageddon except for the Antichrist and his false prophet and only briefly. No unbeliever is going to be saved to serve the saints or given yet another chance to accept Messiah. Armageddon is going to operate under the same instructions that Samuel has given Saul for eradicating Amalek because that's what's going on. You see, Armageddon is the culmination of the holy war against Amalek. Against the people who are against God and His chosen. And it is also the culmination of the holy war for Canaan, God's kingdom land. How many songs do church congregations sing on Sunday mornings speaking of the end times mighty warrior Jesus and of that great and terrible day of his return and how everything that is not for the Lord and of the Lord is going to be burned up and destroyed on that day. And we applaud it. The words are often accurate. The problem is that the singing of them doesn't seem to bring about any kind of of honest or sober mental picture into the minds of the worshipers of just what it is that's taking place in that song. We have in Armageddon the classic Old Testament holy war complete with its law of harem, the law of the ban. God has ordained this holy war. God is the commander-in-chief of this holy war. And thus, none of the spoils of the holy war of Armageddon can be awarded to God's soldiers. All of it is banned, given only to God. All must be destroyed as the standard means of turning the spoils over to God. Men, women, old, young, animals, buildings, you name it. If it belongs to the enemy... It's to be destroyed without mercy and without exception. Again, the destruction of Armageddon is not about getting rid of it. It's about obedience to the law of Harem. It's not destruction for the sake of destruction. The Holy Scriptures clearly, clearly explain that destruction by fire is the means by which spoils of holy war taken from God's enemies are to be set apart and then turned over to the Lord. And note, please, this is not the same thing as a sacrifice. This is not a sacrifice. And we're going to get into that matter in the next lesson or so. That's a deep subject in and of itself. <clears throat> and we're going to discover later in this chapter, King Saul would have made a really good Christian. He just couldn't bring himself to fully obey God's word and thus destroy everything belonging to the enemy that had any value in his eyes. 
It didn't make any sense to him. And even when the Lord told Saul that he had disobeyed and he had not followed the law of the band by proceeding with total destruction, Saul argued that he had. It's just that in his own heart, he thought he had a better way to go about this than God's way. Saul saw what he did as good. That God's way was just maybe a little bit too harsh and destructive and and maybe even outdated. I mean, after all, by Saul's time, hundreds of years had passed since the time of Moses. Surely God could see that his worshipers had gained such an advanced state of knowledge and morality that they could now make those judgments on their own, no matter how contrary that those judgments might be to those those old laws given to Moses so long ago at Mount Sinai. Let's read a few more verses. And we'll conclude. We're going to read uh, 1 Samuel 15, 4 through 9. Just five more verses. Shaul summoned the people and reviewed them at uh, Telaim, and 2,200,000 foot soldiers with another 10,000 men from Judah. And Shaul arrived at the city of Amalek, and he lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Canaanites, Go away, withdraw, leave your homes there with the Amalekites. Otherwise, I might destroy you along with them, even though you were kind to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Keni went away from among the Amaleki. And then Shaul attacked Amalek and starting at Havilah and continuing towards Shur at the border of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of Amalek, alive, but he completely destroyed the people, putting them to the sword. However, Saul and the people spared Agag along with the best of the sheep and cattle and even the second best. Also the lambs, everything that was good... They weren't inclined to destroy these things. But everything that was worthless or weak, they completely destroyed. King Saul followed Samuel's instructions and he called for the Israeli militia to assemble at a place called Telaim, meaning place of the lambs. And Telaim was located about 35 miles south of Hebron. Now, note that just as in 1 Samuel chapter 11, the army of Judah is mentioned separately from the rest of Israel. This was because of the political divisions and tribal alliances that had formed, and we talked about this over the past several weeks. Now, let me remind you that as of this time, Judah and Simeon were aligned to form the southern tribal territory of Israel, while Saul's tribe, Benjamin, was aligned with seven other tribes to form the northern tribal territory of Israel. And those Israelite tribes on the east bank of the Jordan had divided loyalties. And generally, on a clan-by-clan basis, they either remained independent or their loyalties leaned towards either the northern or the southern coalition. Now, let's also be clear that all of these alignments ebbed and flowed and evolved with regularity over time, as we'll especially see, by the way, when David comes into the picture. Now, after Saul reviewed the troops, and although it's not mentioned, he would have definitely taken a census of the army, they marched to confront the Amalekites at a place generically called the city of the Amalekites. In other words, we're not given its name. 
Further, the Hebrew word used here that is usually translated as city is ir. Right, I-R. And ir doesn't need to be translated as city and thus imply a large walled city. It could mean town, which in Bible speak is a place of substantial population, but it doesn't have protective walls. Now, no valley is big enough to hide 210,000 men, All right, the ones that Saul would use. So no doubt, this was a garrison of Israelite soldiers who lay in wait in this valley, with the remainder nearby enough to join the battle against Amalek pretty quickly and as they were needed. Now, living near this city of the Amalekites was a tribe of people called the Cani, or the, the Kenites. And we've heard of them before. And, and since these people had been a friend of Israel, Saul didn't want them to accidentally get into harm's way and so suggested that they pack up and leave for a time. So, verse 6 says that the Kenites were kind to Israel. But that significantly misses the impact of the original Hebrew word, which is chesed. Okay. Chesed is a word denoting righteous actions and deeds of mercy and, and charity. So the Kenites were highly regarded by both God and Israel as genuine Gentile friends of Israel who deeply cared for Israel's well-being. But so there's no misunderstanding. They were not Israelites and thus they were not redeemed people. A Gentile then as now can demonstrate great mercy and charity towards Israel. But that doesn't of itself save them. Trust and faith in the God of Israel is the only way in any era to redemption. Saul saying that he might destroy you along with them, this was not a threat from Saul. It was just that in this kind of warfare, it's near impossible to tell friend from foe in the heat of battle. But even more, you see, this was not going to be a war between two opposing militaries in order to gain some political objective. King Saul's divine instructions was to destroy the entire civilian population of Amalek. Unlike usual warfare of that era, no distinction is to be made between the non-combatants and the soldiers. All are to be annihilated. Therefore, it would be easy to accidentally mistake some of the Kenite citizens for Amalekites. So the Kenites, were told, wisely fled the area temporarily. Well, once the Kenites were clear of danger, Saul's forces attacked, beginning at a place called Havilah and continuing all the way to, to Shur that bordered Egypt. Uh, academics are fairly certain that this was located along a river usually known as the Wadi of Egypt, as this formerly flowing but now dry riverbed is called. This Wadi was the natural boundary at that time between Egypt and Canaan. Well, as is so typical of the biblical style, we're spared any gory details of the battle. We don't even know how long it lasted. 
All we know is that the defeat of the Amalekites was swift and sure. You see, any Hebrew hearing this story and eventually reading it would have taken for granted that victory was assured. To have written about it and expanded on it would have just been anticlimactic. The Lord ordained the war, so it was simply a matter of doing it. The outcome was taken for granted. But with verse 8, a problem arises. Saul decided to take Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and hold him captive. The entire Amalekite population of the area was indeed slaughtered. But the only domestic animals that belonged to the enemy that were destroyed were the weak and the sickly. The best animals, even the merely healthy animals, were captured as booty. Even personal possessions of the Amalekites that were deemed as valuable and desirable were confiscated and brought to Saul. As verse 9 says, they just weren't inclined to destroy those things. But everything that was worthless in Saul's eyes was destroyed. Now, why exactly Saul captured Agag, we're not told. And there's all matter of speculation as to why. Agog agreed to surrender rather than fight if his life was spared, perhaps. Or maybe um, King Saul thought it was diplomatic or it wasn't fitting that a king of so great a nation be killed. Okay. There's further speculation that Agog wasn't even the king's name, but it was just a title, like Pharaoh. So that every person who held that office was given the same title. In fact, in the, as an aside, in the book of Esther, uh, we find that Haman is called the Agagite. All right, probably a well-known insult of that era, signifying an enemy of God and of Israel. Well, I think we've spent enough time with this today for you to know that what Saul did was a direct disobedience to the law of Harem and to God's oracle to Saul as given through Samuel. Next week, we'll follow this story a little further and examine some of the other principles that are going to come barreling out at us. Okay?